Good morning, friends. Good to see you and to have this opportunity to open up God's word together. I'm gonna pray for us again briefly, and then we will look at God's word. Let's pray. Speak to us, O God. Your servants are listening. Our ears, our hearts are open. By your spirit, help us to receive your word with joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2009, the landscape of corporate leadership training changed dramatically at a TEDx event in Newcastle, Washington. The event was organized by an Allison Whitmire, who happened to be a native of Bethesda, Maryland, and the theme for the talks that evening was The Art of Living, Integrating Life's Passions. Whitmire said she chose the theme because America was in the midst of a recession and business owners were struggling to keep their companies on track. They needed to be reconnected with the reason they started their businesses in the first place and to be re-inspired by their passion for what they do. There were a number of speakers giving talks on that theme at the event, but it is almost impossible to find record of them because they were all eclipsed that night and in the years since, by the opening speaker. That speaker's name was Simon Sinek, and his talk that night was titled, Start With Why. That 15-minute talk has been viewed some 30-plus million times, and his book by the same title that he later released has sold over a million copies. Clearly, his message touched a nerve, and it touched a nerve in the corporate world because so many people had lost touch with the why behind their professional pursuits, the why behind the reason they started their company or wrote a book or entered into a certain profession in the first place. Cynic's talk helped people to connect with their professional identity, who they are as a speaker, author, CEO, appliance repairman, teacher, doctor, nurse, on and on, and it helped them to reconnect again with why they do what they do in the first place. That is the passion that drives their professional pursuits. We can actually take Cynic's talk, his main point, and project it into the spiritual realm. We can project it into the Christian life, right? Let's think about these things. Do you go to church? Easy enough answer, yes, of course you do, you're here today. Do you give to a church? Do you seek to live a godly life? Do you read the Bible? Do you tell other people about Jesus? Those are all what you do. But what if I asked you why you do those things? Is it just because that's what your family did growing up? Is it just because that's what the Bible says to do, so I'm gonna do it? Not a bad reason, but is that why? Is it because you have friends that do it? Or is there a deeper identity out of which flows a passion, a why, for doing what you do? The Bible isn't unconcerned with these questions. In fact, the Bible has lots to say about who you are as a Christian and how your identity gives rise to a glorious reason for why you exist. And our passage today is one such text. These two verses 
are as loaded as any in the New Testament with identity-shaping truths that propel us into a glorious reason for why we exist and for what God is doing through us as individual Christians and as a local church. So I want you to go ahead and turn with me in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking specifically today at verses 9 and 10. If you're using the Bible that we provided in the seats around you, you'll find our passage on page 1015. If you don't have a Bible of your own and you would like a copy of your own to read, we want to invite you to take the copy that we provided as a gift from us to you. As always, I want to encourage you to open to the passage so that you can follow along as I read it and then keep your Bible open. We're not only going to be looking at this text often in our time together, but we are going to go back and look at other texts in the Old Testament that help us to understand what Peter is teaching here. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2 are the culmination of the first major section of Peter's letter, where he's been focused on the glorious salvation that God has accomplished for us and what that means for who we are and what our mission in life should be. In chapter one, up to chapter two in this point, we've learned so far that God chose us. God set us apart by his spirit. God cleansed us by the blood of Jesus. We learned that we've been born again, given a living hope and an imperishable inheritance. And we learned that last week, through faith in Jesus, all who've trusted in him are being made into a spiritual temple and a holy priesthood called to offer our entire lives to God as a spiritual sacrifice. And our verses this week, verses 9 and 10, are the exclamation point on the new identity that God has given us and the new purpose he's given us for our lives. So if you're a Christian, who are you? And why do you exist? Listen now as I read verses 9 and 10. This is God's word. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you're taking notes, the main point of this passage is that the church is the true people of God called to proclaim God's glory to the world. The church is the true people of God called to proclaim God's glory to the world. We're gonna consider these verses by asking and answering two questions. These questions will serve as the two points of the message if you wanna take notes so you can follow along. First, who are you? Second, why do you exist? See that this passage answers both of those questions with very clear and awesome and wonderful answers. So first, if you've trusted in Jesus, who are you? The amazing answer that Peter gives is, you are a member of the true people of God. 
That may not seem like much to you, but I hope you'll see something of the glory and honor and privilege of that reality as we move through the text. If you've trusted in Jesus, you are a member of the true people of God, a citizen of the true Israel. Go ahead and look with me at verse 9 again. Peter opens with the word, but, but you are a chosen race. He's contrasting what he's about to say to these Christians with what he's just said about those who don't believe in Jesus. And in contrast to those who don't believe in Jesus, you believers are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. These aren't unrelated descriptions. These aren't just kind of things that Peter was like, oh, what about this one? I think chosen race sounds good. Holy nation sounds good. Royal priesthood sounds good. In linking these seemingly unrelated descriptions together, Peter is actually showing that the church is the true Israel. Believers who are Jewish and believers who are Gentile together are the true people of God who have become God's people through a new exodus, and the new covenant that God has mercifully made with us. Why do I say that? Well, because Peter is essentially quoting Exodus 19, verses five and six. But to think about the context here. After God rescued the people of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt, famously bringing them through the Red Sea, then leading them through the wilderness, providing for them all along the way, he eventually brings them to Mount Sinai where he reminds them of what he had just done for them, the rescue he had accomplished for them, and then where he makes a covenant with them, establishing them as his chosen people. Now listen to what God says in verses five and six of Exodus 19. He says, now therefore, If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel was to be God's treasured possession, a people for his own possession, as Peter says. They were to be a kingdom of priests or a royal priesthood, and they were to be a holy nation. By obeying God's commands, they were to show off God's glory to the world. The the only description that Peter uses that isn't present in Exodus 19 is the description of Israel as a chosen race. But what we find moving forward from Exodus 19 is that God repeatedly reminds the people of Israel, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, that he chose them out of all the nations on earth. Think of Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, for instance. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession out of all the people on the face of the earth. Israel was to be God's chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, of people who were to be God's treasured possession if, if 
if they would obey God's voice and keep his covenant by obeying his commands. What did God say? Exodus 19, verses five and six. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession and a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But we know how that story goes, don't we? Over the course of the next roughly 1,000 years, the nation of Israel repeatedly falls into a cycle of sinning against God grievously, experiencing judgment from God, repenting to God, and then being restored by God until finally God sends the nation of Israel into exile for their sins, casting them out of the promised land and out of his presence. But the story doesn't end in exile. Throughout the Old Testament, God promises that he'll gather his exiled people once again, but this time his people won't just be ethnic Israelites, but will be people gathered from all the nations. And their deliverance from exile will be like a new exodus. You see this all over the Old Testament, but it's especially evident in Isaiah 43, which was our scripture reading this morning, and which happens to be uniquely connected to our verses here in 1 Peter. So I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to Isaiah 43. I want, to, I want you to see this for yourself. In Isaiah 43, what you're gonna find is that God promises to, a, to accomplish a new exodus for his specially chosen people. And we have to remember here, as you're turning to Isaiah 43, that the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are a message of judgment against Israel because of the sins that they have committed persistently against God. God promises over and over again in those first 39 chapters that he is going to send them into exile because they haven't kept his covenant. They haven't been a holy nation or a royal priesthood. But the second half of Isaiah is a message of future salvation, beginning in chapter 40 all the way to the end of chapter 66. It is a message of future salvation. Even though they're going into exile, God will once again deliver his people through a new exodus. And his deliverance of those people will constitute them as his specially chosen people, a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession is what will come out of this new exodus. You cannot miss this in Isaiah 43. Just go ahead and look down there with me at the beginning of verse one, Isaiah 43. Notice the echoes of the exodus. As you're studying the Bible and reading the Old Testament, pay attention to the imagery. It's important, it's crucial. The imagery, if it's, if it's connected to a past event, God is trying to tell you something about what he's going to do in the future. Speaking to the, pe the people who will experience this new exodus, look at verse one. God says to them, fear not, for I have redeemed you, like I did for Israel, coming out of Egypt. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, just as I was with Israel as they passed through the Red Sea. Verse three, I give Egypt as your ransom, like I did in the Exodus for the people of Israel. Verse four, you are precious, honored, and loved as Israel was. Verses five and six, I will gather my people from the east and the west, the north and the south. Verse seven, 
I will gather everyone who is called by my name, who I created and formed and made for my glory. Verses eight to 15, we're not gonna look closely at it. Basically what God reiterates in those verses is that he is the only true God and no one will stop him from accomplishing this. Now look at verse 16 and following. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea. Right? The God who parted the Red Sea is speaking. Not only that, verse 17. The God who brings chariots, horses, armies, and warriors to nothing in the Red Sea is speaking. Verse 19, behold, I am doing a new thing. I am bringing about a new Exodus, verse 19, what will that be like? I will make a way in the wilderness, verse 20. I will give water in the wilderness, just, just like I gave to Israel after they entered into the wilderness. But who will this water be given to? Verse 20, to give drink to my chosen people, the people who I formed for myself. Now, don't miss this. Why will God give them this water? What does Isaiah say? That they might declare my praise. What is Peter about to say about those who have believed in Jesus? We are a chosen race, a new Israel, having been delivered from our bondage to sin through a new exodus so that we might proclaim the excellencies of God, so that we might declare God's praises. The ethnic nation of Israel in the Old Testament was a shadow and a type of the true nation and race of people that God intended to gather to himself. A people not united by their ethnicity or their race or their nationality, but a chosen spiritual race united by our common faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Think about this. God, Isaiah is predicting a new exodus when God would deliver his chosen people, a people from north, south, east, and west, a people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and when he delivers them, it will be as though he is giving them water in the wilderness, drink for his chosen people whom he formed for himself that they might declare his praise. I give water in the wilderness to give drink to my chosen people that they might declare my praise. Question. What did Jesus offer to the non-Jewish Samaritan woman at the well? What did he offer her? What was different about the water that he offered her than the water she was there to get? He gave her, he was offering her living water, right? Living water in the wilderness, for his chosen people, and after the Samaritan woman realized that Jesus was the Messiah, what did she do? She went and declared his praise. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Friends, the new Exodus predicted by Isaiah, through which God entered into a new covenant, establishing us as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, has happened through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came not to ransom us from bondage to physical slavery, but to lead us in a new exodus out of our slavery to sin. 
He came to put to shame not rulers like Pharaoh, but the satanic and spiritual forces aligned against God and against his church, which Jesus put to open shame on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, it was as though the waters of the Red Sea were flooding over Satan and over the demonic forces opposed to God and his people. And Jesus came to deliver not just ethnic Israelites, but people from every tribe and tongue and nation who would look to his atoning death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead in faith, believing that he is both Lord and Savior. And with those people, God established a new covenant through the blood of his son, Jesus. But this covenant is not like the covenant that God made with Israel. Their status as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, depended on their obedience. If you obey my commands and keep my covenant, you will be these things. But the new covenant that God has made with us isn't like the old covenant that he made with Israel. It isn't dependent on our obedience, but ultimately and finally and fully on the obedience of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true chosen one. He is the true royal priest. He is the true holy nation, holy unto the Lord. He is God's treasured possession, my beloved son. We become those things as we are united to him in faith. And it's because of his obedience, which he kept all of the law on our behalf, that that covenant with God's people cannot be broken. You are God's chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We have become those things not by our obedience or by our own merit or by our own greatness, but purely by God's grace and mercy. Friends, you see what God is doing throughout all of scripture. Tony already touched on it this morning. It begins in the beginning. These promises are there from the beginning throughout the Old Testament into the new, culminating, finally climaxing in Revelation. See what he's doing. Do you see that God has been doing throughout all human history? He has been at work gathering a people for himself whom he would graciously choose for no reason in themselves in order to shower his love and affection upon and who would receive the great and high calling of serving him as priests and kings in his kingdom who would live holy lives to reflect his goodness and whom he would regard as his very own treasured possession. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel foreshadowed this. But through faith in Jesus, the reality of what God has been doing throughout all the ages has come to fruition in the church. The church, made up of believing Jews and Gentiles, people from all nations, tribes, and tongues who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, is the fulfillment of God's purposes to gather for himself a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. If you've repented and believed in Jesus, that's your identity. This is who you are. You are a citizen of the true people of God. We're about to look at the one big application that Peter wants us to take away in point two, but I wanna briefly apply what Peter is teaching here about our identity. Notice what this teaches us about our identity. Peter is making the radical claim that those who put their faith in Jesus Christ 
whether Jew or Gentile, Asian or Anglo, African, Australian, Hispanic, Arabian, wherever you wanna go on the globe, whatever nationality or ethnicity you want to pull, though we may come from many nationalities and ethnicities through faith in Christ, God has constituted us as a new people who have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and have been endowed with a glorious identity and calling in Christ. This is crucial for us to understand. We talked about it some in the Sunday school this morning. Our culture is pushing us to find our identity within, within our ethnicity, within our gender, within our sexuality. But Jesus Christ calls you to find your true identity outside of yourself in him and in the community of people that he is forming for himself. All other identities in this world, whether ethnic, uh, gender, sexual, professional, familial, I'm a Joseph, right? But I'm not ultimately a Joseph. I am first a Christian. I am first in Jesus Christ through faith in him. And that, de- that, that determines how I view every other identity that the world wants to push on me or that it calls me to cultivate for myself. The fact that I am a Christian leads and guides everything in my life. Everything else, every other identity I might try to find for myself is subordinated to that identity. And I don't want to act like some of these identities aren't real. I'm a man. I'm a husband. I, you know, I'm, I'm this or that. You, you might be African-American. You might be Ethiopian. You might be from Sweden, right? right? But in the church, Paul says, there is no longer male or female. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, barbarian, Scythian. There's no longer slave or free. But we are all one in Christ Jesus. He's not saying that men don't exist and that women don't exist. He is not saying that ethnicities don't exist and nationalities don't exist and professions don't exist. He's saying they're all subordinated to one in Christ. Friends, in this community of people, this chosen racist, holy nation, the dividing walls of hostility that culture is erecting between us and and that it wants to erect between us have been torn down in Jesus Christ. He himself is our peace. And our identities in this life that are normal for us to take, man, woman, you know, whether I'm African-American or Caucasian or whether I'm a a plumber or a pastor, right, they're all subordinated to in Christ. I, I am part of God's chosen people first. And we need to be thinking about those things. And that identity about being in Christ, this member of the true people of God, gives rise to a glorious purpose for why we exist, which brings us to point two, why do you exist? If, you, if we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, holy nation, people for God's own possession, if that's who we are, why do we exist? Look again at verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. After establishing our new identity as the true people of God, we now hear about what our mission in life is to be. Peter tells us why we exist, and why do we exist? We exist to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. I love how Peter puts it. I couldn't come up with a better word myself. We exist to proclaim God's excellencies. Our God is an excellent God and his excellencies aren't limited to one or two or three. His excellencies are manifold and praiseworthy. 
What excellencies does Peter have in mind? Kids, can any of y'all shout out? What what are some of the attributes of God that you think Peter is referring to here that he says are praiseworthy? His grace. Anyone else? Mercy. Mercy and grace always go together. Love that. Mercy and grace. What other attributes in the back there? Olivia? His salvation. A, A beautiful display of his mercy and grace. Abram? His power, yeah, we could go on and on. Peter is thinking about all sorts of excellencies. I think he has things in mind like God's omniscience. God knows all things or God's omnipresence. God is in all places at all times. There is nowhere that we can go from his presence. And I don't think I would wanna go anywhere from his presence. That would be a scary place to be. Or God's transcendence. He's exalted over all the earth, high and lifted up, dwelling in unapproachable light. Or his imminence, he's also near to the brokenhearted and those who are crushed in spirit. Or his righteousness, he's morally perfectly pure. There is no darkness or evil in him. Or his justice, he knows the hearts of all and perfectly understands all motives and all actions and renders perfect judgment on all who stand before him. Or his eternality, he is the eternal I am. He never began and never ends. Or his sovereignty, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. No one can thwart his will or stand in the way of the accomplishment of his purposes. Or his immutability, unlike us, our God never changes. Or his self-sufficiency, he has life in himself. He needs nothing from anyone. Or his wisdom, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how high above us are his ways. Or his faithfulness, he is the faithful God keeping covenant to a thousand generations of those who love him, or his goodness. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Or his patience and forbearance. God is patient towards you, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Our God is an excellent God. Y'all can say amen to that. Our God is an ex. I think of this song. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome. Sing it again. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is an excellent God. We exist to proclaim his excellencies, not ours. Our life is about him, telling people how great and glorious he is. Oh man, I think though, if we think about what Peter says about God in the passage, that two specific excellencies rise to the surface. Both of them were named, by the way, and those are God's power and God's mercy and grace. Why do I say that? Look again at what Peter says about God. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our God is the God whose power is so great that he can speak a word and bring dead and ruined sinners to life. Who can speak and cause people who love the darkness to now turn and become children of the light. You, you, you can't help but think of Jesus standing before Lazarus's tomb. Lazarus, who was dead, 
dead for days, his body in bed decomposing at this point. And then what does Jesus do? Into the darkness, he calls. Lazarus, come out. What does Lazarus do? Gets up, walks out of the tomb. One pastor said that if Jesus, when he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, if he didn't call Lazarus by name, but instead just said, come out, all the dead would have gotten up. Regardless of whether that's the case, we we don't know. What he is saying is that God's word is so powerful that nobody can resist his will. Even those who are dead in sin will come out into the marvelous light of God's saving grace when he calls them. But it doesn't just tell us of God's power, it tells us of God's mercy. God is merciful to those who love the darkness and love their sin more than him. God is merciful to people who want nothing to do with him. God mercifully forgives those who rebel against him and mercifully brings them from the darkness out into the light. There is nobody so darkened that God is unable to call them into the light. The Puritan, uh, the famous Puritan Richard Sibbs famously said, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There is more light in God than darkness in us and his light is able to quench our darkness totally and completely. And not only are God's power and mercy his excellencies to be proclaimed, but I want you to notice how they propel proclamation. If God is so powerful that he can make spiritually dead people come alive and so merciful that he calls people who love the darkness to enjoy the beauty of his glorious light, then there is nobody who is so far gone that they can't believe. You have those people in your life? You get like, who is the person in your life that you're thinking, no way, unreachable? Maybe for you, but not for God. Nobody is unreachable. I would have been that person in other people's minds. Like, John, no way. John is, wait, nobody's gonna reach him with the gospel. I guess it, y'all say that, but I, my word's all powerful. I am all powerful and merciful. I call people from the darkness out into the light. You just, you go out and talk about me. You go out and proclaim my excellencies and you watch what I do. I can bring people from the deepest of darkness out into my glorious light. And we who have experienced his power and received his mercy, having our eyes open to his manifold excellencies, should want to tell others about our excellent God. Right, the proclamation of his excellencies is one major aspect of why we exist as Christians. We exist to tell others about God's glory and mercy and power and brilliance and beauty and love and righteousness and on and on so that others would come to experience the freedom from sin and judgment that God offers through his son, Jesus Christ. But how? How do we do it? How do we proclaim God's excellencies in a culture that seems increasingly opposed to God and increasingly hostile to the message of Christianity? This is where we can be helped by understanding the original context of the audience that Peter wrote to. The Christians that Peter was writing to were in a remarkably similar situation. I'd say even worse than the ones that, that we're in right now. They lived in a culture and in a time in which the worship of many gods was the norm and in which Christianity was especially offensive because of its insistence that only Jesus was the true God. They didn't mind if you believed in Jesus as long as you worshiped all the other gods too. But as soon as you start saying, no, he is the only way, that that was offensive to them. That was a, a stench to them. 
in individualistic America, we may not have a pantheon of gods like the Romans and Greeks, but each person is told they're their own god. And people don't like to hear that Jesus is the only way. And they need to turn away from being their own God to, to submit to him and follow him. Not only that, but these Christians were being ostracized by their families, friends, neighbors, and coworkers for their countercultural morality. Their views on drunkenness, on sexuality, on honoring the government, on marriage, and so on, brought them into direct conflict with the culture and made them the target of jokes, insults, and persecution. Peter talks about this all throughout his letter. When people speak evil against you, keep doing good. Someday they might turn and honor God uh, and, and, and honor God's glory, right? And into that context, Peter gives them two strategies that we can employ to proclaim God's excellencies. I want you to track with me. These are, these are innovative and profound. Strategy one, talk about Jesus. Groundbreaking, I know. I specialize in new and innovative ways to approach the Christian life. This is what I'm paid by the church to do. I come up with new things. Not true. Strategy one, proclaim God's excellencies. Talk about Jesus. Strategy two, live holy lives. Those are the two things that Peter says. Proclaim his excellencies, live holy lives. When people ask you why you're living holy lives, proclaim his excellencies by defending the hope that you have in Jesus. It's all just... Talk about Jesus, live holy lives. Live holy lives, talk about back, back and forth. Let's think about these two strategies. Talk about Jesus. The Christian life is inherently conversational. We have a message for other people. That message is about the excellencies of God revealed in the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. And that message is not one directional preaching all all the time, right? It, it happens on Sundays where I'm preaching, but it includes often, and more often than not, conversation. Think about Jesus's conversation with the woman at the well. He didn't just land in front of her and say, I am the Messiah, believe. He had a conversation. Why do you, why do, you do that? What do you think's gonna happen when you worship on that man? I, I think something else is taught in the Old Testament, and I want, I want you to see that it's happening right now in, in front of you. Or think about Paul at the Areopagus. He preaches to a group of people, which was normal in that day, and then those who were interested went away with him to have more conversation. We often think of evangelism and salvation as one-time events, but they're often way more of a process. Like, I, I think of myself personally, I bet you can see this in your own life. I had countless conversations with Christians. I read multiple books. I listened to tons of YouTube videos and sermons online, and through that process, God revealed his excellencies to me. In the same way, we want to, want to approach the proclamation of God's excellencies as a process that we may play a small or a large part in in someone's life. But for that conversation to take place, most often, relationship needs to exist. Not always. There are absolutely times where we might have just a few minutes with a person we've never met before. Think of the example on a plane in an Uber, something like that, where you, you just start talking about Jesus, right? But as we take stock of our lives, we should all look around and ask, who are the non-Christians that I can build a relationship with so that I can tell them about God's power, God's mercy, and God's love? I want to encourage you to be intentional Many of you, I know, have only a very small amount of bandwidth to work with. 
whether because of your stage in life or your work or a combination of the two. And so you're gonna have to be intentional about how you cultivate these relationships. I wanna encourage you to regularly be thinking about how you can put yourself in the way of other non-Christians. Now, I'm not talking about when you're walking down the sidewalk, like stepping out and like letting somebody run into you, but how can you, in your daily rhythms of life, come in contact with non-Christians on a regular basis so that you can establish a relationship with them so that you can proclaim the excellencies of God to them, so you can talk about the Lord. Think about these different categories that you may have in your life. Your family, immediate and extended. Your physical neighbors, your coworkers or other work relationships, your extracurricular networks, maybe it's a hobby or the gym or your kids' sports leagues. Choose one of those and ask God to help you be more intentional in building relationships there. Then think about being intentional in your rhythms. Within those networks, in your extended family, maybe it's regularly texting or calling a family member to cultivate relationship. Or with neighbors, maybe it's making sure you're available and outside when they're normally available and outside. Or coworkers, pick one or two that you're regularly grabbing coffee with or a meal with. Or it's kids' sports leagues, building a relationship with non-Christians there. Be intentional about your rhythms and practices. And then as you do, look for opportunities to talk about the Lord. Here's the great thing. Often, we put way too much pressure on ourselves, like how am I gonna start this conversation? There are opportunities all around you just to start a conversation that you can then turn to the Lord. You often don't have to create the opportunity. Often God opens a door for you. Think of opportunities like major headlines, events, national news. Talk about the wildfires in Maui or the earthquake in Morocco. Go into that conversation thinking, how am I going, how do I expect this person to respond? How, How am I gonna think about navigating this conversation towards the Lord, right? It can be anything. Or look for moments of suffering or trials in people's lives. Whether it's losing a loved one or sustaining an injury or being diagnosed with a disease or experiencing family breakdown, when those around us encounter these situations, the Lord often opens a door for conversation. And these are opportunities for us to proclaim all the various excellencies of God. Think about all that God is, all about who he is, and all the different excellencies that you could possibly bring up in any given conversation, depending on what a person is going through. But we don't just talk about Jesus to proclaim God's excellencies. We also live holy lives. In fact, throughout Peter, it is holy living that often leads to opportunities to talk about the Lord. When we choose to forgo living for ourselves, when we choose not to partake in the worship of self that is so prized in our culture, when we choose not to make self-expression or our own personal happiness and our comfort our own gods, when we choose to not use our bodies for the same type of immorality that the world encourages using your body for, we will have opportunity to tell others about why we don't do these things. Because there is an excellent God in heaven who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light and has given us the privilege of living by his word. And our doing that, living by his word, shows off his value, worth, and honor. And I wanna talk to you about how you can do that in your life and why why you should do that in your life. This is why in chapter three, Peter's gonna talk about experiencing persecution for doing good and then say, always be prepared to give a defense for the faith that you have. He explicitly connects holy living with opportunities to declare God's excellencies. This is why for the teens especially and those in college 
here, you'll often hear people kind of mock belief in God, like, why on earth would God care what I do with my body? Like, that's ridiculous. Like, why would God care who I sleep with? Or things like that, right? God cares because what we do with our bodies tells people what we believe about him. What we do with our bodies proclaims God's excellencies to the world around us. But as we proclaim the excellencies of God by talking to people about Jesus and living holy lives, we should be filled with humility. Friends, what Peter is teaching here utterly decimates pride and should cultivate in us the deepest possible humility that were it not for God's grace to us, we wouldn't be his chosen people at all. I think of all the pickup sports games I played as a kid. If you weren't the captain of the teams, of one of the teams involved in the game, you wanted to be one of the first ones chosen. To be chosen in a playground pickup game meant you were hot stuff. Yeah, I got picked first. Of course I did. Have you seen, have you seen my left leg at kickball? You know what I can do to one of those rubber balls? I kick it a mile. That is not what we're supposed to think. In fact, God wants us to liken his choosing of us to a playground game, and he wants us to know we were the last ones chosen. The kid nobody wanted on their team and only had to pick because there was nobody else to pick. Remember what God said to the nation of Israel? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you that he chose you. Why does he love us? Because he loves us. You may have heard the phrase, it's turtles all the way down. It refers to the problem of infinite regress. The saying alludes to the mythological turtle that holds the world on its back. But then the, the question comes, who's holding the turtle? A bigger turtle. Who's holding the bigger turtle? An even bigger, infinite regress. It's turtles all the way down right? Friends, God's love for you is turtles all the way down. Dear hardest boss once said, the reason God will never stop loving you is because he never began. His love for us and his choice of us before the foundation of the world have eternally existed in his eternal and infinite heart and mind. Why does God love you? Because he loves you. He set his love and affection on you to be a chosen nation, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. It is a sheer act of God's grace and mercy to dead and ruined sinners that any of us are who and what we are today. And his love, his free grace, his free choice of us who would not have chosen him should humble us. That's why Peter says what he does in verse 10. Those words, if you look there, come right out of the prophet Hosea. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You have to think about what's happening in, in, in Hosea. God tells the prophet Hosea to go and marry a woman who is faithless. After he marries her, she basically sells herself out sleeps with numerous men, has multiple children out of wedlock, just completely faithless to him while he is married to her, the faithful spouse that he is, until eventually Hosea 
uh, until eventually his wife Gomer ends up being sold by one of the men to whom she gave herself into slavery. And then who shows up to buy her out of slavery? Hosea. But Hosea is not about Hosea. Hosea is about God. The, the passage he's quoting is about our faithlessness. We were all Gomer. We were all Hosea's wife. Sold into slavery. Faithless. Rebelled against God. Wandering like lost sheep. And then who showed up? The Lord Jesus. Who came to take a faithless bride and turn her into a spotless bride by laying down his life, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and mercifully accepting all who come to him in faith that he might make them his true people and that we might proclaim his excellencies. That is who you are, and that is why you exist. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your mercy to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Cause the mercy you've shown us to deeply settle in and affect our hearts that we would be in awe of you and that awe would overflow into a free and joyful proclamation of your excellencies to a world who so desperately needs to hear about you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.